Very good morning. It's a joy and delight as always to worship the Lord together as we now come to His Word for us today. Let's commit this time to the Lord. Gracious Lord, Your Word always brings us hope because Your Word is true and living. We pray that as we come now and meditate on Your words, our faith may be nourished and strengthened to live a life worthy of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The story of uh, David and Goliath uh, remains one of the most well-known and beloved stories of the Bible. Many of us who grew up in church, we were taught this story by our Sunday school teachers from very early on, and I'm sure this is the case as well for our church school kids today. It's one of the stories that my son Caleb was uh, fascinated with when he first began to read uh, read the uh, children's Bible with, uh, of course, special fascination and attention to how a stone might bring down a giant. Even for those outside the church, especially in the West, the David and Goliath imagery remains embedded in culture. Earlier this month, uh, New York Times ran a story about how two friends, the gentlemen with the red and pink on the right there, how they ran a successful campaign to organize a labor union for Amazon's uh, fulfillment center in New York. Of course, Amazon opposed that. But they started as uh, ordinary line workers in the fulfillment center and started to organize for better working conditions and the whole weight of that corporate giant, Amazon came up against them. There seemed little chance of success with David versus Goliath mismatch in terms of resources. So this was a classic underdog against the odds achievement that resonates with our human aspirations and imagination. But perhaps our ingrained cultural imagery of a David versus Goliath's struggle is in danger of missing the most crucial element of what the Bible actually teaches us about the original David versus Goliath moment. It's not so much the vitality or agility of youth against a slow and overconfident giant. Not really about how speed or creativity or surprise can outwit a stronger opponent. These elements are present in the biblical account, to be sure, but these are not the deciding factors. The most crucial lesson in the Bible has always been about how God acts in the life of His people. That is, it is God alone who ultimately decides human affairs. Goliath's fate was not sealed when he underestimated David. No, his defeat and fate were sealed when he defied God and went up against God's people. When you go up against God, it doesn't matter how strong you are, what advantages you have, what superior technology you can bring to the struggle, it's really a no contest. And the one whom God chose to deliver Israel in their battle with the Philistines was the young man whom we last saw as a shepherd boy, taking care of his family's livestock, barely considered worthy to be worth the while of meeting Samuel, until the prophet Samuel anointed him to be the next king of Israel. The anointing of David marks his rise as God's chosen king after God's rejection of uh, Saul's kingship. David's ascension to the throne will not occur until many years later. But the tide of Israel's destiny had now changed 
with David's anointing. God was now working to transform the nation of Israel by transforming and preparing David to progressively grow into a leader who would lead Israel as a man after God's heart. The big idea today is that when that God works powerfully through a man or woman of faith, a person whose life is centered on God and surrendered to God, is the one whom God's grace and transforming power would rest. The Bible is quite clear that David is not perfect, was not perfect. He had serious sins and weaknesses in life. But his life was a God-driven life. His life was overflowing with God's purposes because David was consistently centred on God. Even when he sinned, David repented and came back wholeheartedly to God. David could not imagine a life without God's presence and favour. In contrast to Paul, who we saw came to be, who came to be paranoid about his standing with people, David passionately pursued God as the central purpose of his life. Another way of describing David is that his life speaks volumes about God. It's not so much looking at David as a man or even as a role model. It is about looking at David's life as a demonstration of how God works in the lives of those who passionately believe and obey him, even through all of human weaknesses, fears, failures of our human condition. In particular, David's life shows us the power of God-directed praise, of God-centered perspective, and of God-given prevailing victory. First, the power of God-directed praise. Praise is an expression of life with God. A life of praise and worship is a present encounter with God that anticipates God's further action in the life of the worshipper. The experience of directing heartfelt praise to God today is an anticipation of encountering God in the circumstances of life tomorrow. Praise properly understood is not merely a ritual. It is practicing life with God as individuals and as a community of faith. The acts of praise re-centers us back to who God is and who we are in relation to God. David's life is one that is characterized by praise. Many of the Psalms that we have, 150 Psalms, many of them, about maybe less than half, are attributed to David. But the whole of the Psalms gives us a picture of life, a life of God-directed praise, as well as worship, prayer, obedience to God's word. David's life of God-directed praise shows us that his experience of God was in real time. For David, the act of praise and worship was never confined to a formal religious ritual. His life of worship intertwined deeply with his everyday experience of life. The Psalms show us David's life of praise and prayer while rejoicing in God, while he was on the run from his enemies, 
defeating his enemies in battle, being betrayed by friends and loved ones, and when he was sick in bed. While we may sometimes worship and praise God only when it is convenient for us, David worshipped God as if his life depended on it, literally like his life depended on it. Having our church services live stream and available as recordings on YouTube, for example, does make it very convenient to time and schedule our worship to what suits us best. But we must remember that there's a huge difference between trying to fit worship around our schedule and centering our lives around worship. Scheduling worship around our lives and schedule is about time management. And sometimes we find that we, are run, we, ran out, we run out of time for God, right? But centering life around worship is about life with God. It's about a life lived with God at the centre of our experience. Centering our lives around worship does, of course, still require time management, schedules, orderly times of personal devotion and corporate worship. That's part of the stewardship of time. But these scheduled times of worship prepare us to experience and encounter God in every aspect of our lives. When we read and meditate on the Psalms, we are immediately struck by how God is so much part of the life of David and the other psalmists. There's a passionate hunger and yearning for God deep within their souls, especially during the times when they could not feel God close by. And that is to say, David's life of praise is down-to-earth realistic. The Psalms is filled with praise intermingled with lament, grief, anger, confusion, hatred, hope, joy, longing for better days ahead. David's life of praise is realistic because it reflects our shared human condition. A life of praise and worship is not confined to times of joy, ease, and convenience. It is a life shot through with pain, burdens, and struggles. But yet David always, always finds himself drawn back to God. Even if he tried, we could not celebrate success without having God at the centre of his joy. He could not cry without making sure that he is weeping in God's presence. And yes, in times when David cannot feel God's presence, he places his longing and confusion before God as well. But through all the realities of life, a life of God-directed praise calls for a response. Whether we come with joy or fear or sadness before God in heartfelt worship, prayer and praise, God responds. It is in God's nature to respond to the cry of those who put their faith and trust completely in Him. We may not always see or experience God's response immediately, but understand that God who created the heavens and the earth will not let the prayer and the praise of His people fall down to the ground unattended. And because God responds 
to the heartfelt worship and prayers of His people, we as His people are able to respond to the circumstances of life. We are able to meet the threatening giants of life because God's own response to that situation goes with us, works through us, or works on our behalf. The battle is won in any situation because God has already responded and we are going to face the battle with God's response. There's a very fascinating um, account in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This was a time many hundred years after David. This was a time when uh, where God's people faced a giant of an army. There was a coalition of enemy tribes with gathered to attack Judah, the southern kingdom at that time. In response, King Jehoshaphat called all the people to assemble and pray for God's deliverance. And the Lord responded by asking them to go out and meet the enemy. And as they went out on the day of battle, the king appointed worship leaders, not battle-hardened soldiers, mind you, worship leaders, in front of the army where they were to start praising the Lord. And they gave the praise, give thanks to the Lord for His love endures forever. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 22, this is the amazing part, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord started or set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. So in this particular instance, God's people didn't even need to fight. They just needed to praise and worship and put their faith in the Lord. And the praise preceded the deliverance. Something happens in the heavenly realms when God's people put their faith in God and call upon His name in heartfelt praise, prayer, and worship. As many Christian writers and worship leaders like to say, praise changes the atmosphere. One of the Hebrew words that describe the, the action of praise is worshipping and praising God with a musical instrument. This seems to be what uh, David did with a lyre when he played it for King Saul in 1 Samuel 16. Uh, Saul was afflicted by an evil spirit that the Lord had sent to torment him. Saul was trapped in this atmosphere of oppression and turmoil because of the afflicting, afflicting spirit. But when David played the lyre, it changed the whole atmosphere for Saul. Although it's not explicitly stated, the implication is that David's music was praise directed to God and that praise music gave relief for Saul even though he was under God's judgment. In the, in the midst of praise, even if it's just music, in the midst of praise and worship, the, the afflicting spirit could not abide to be in that presence of praise. David's life had impact because he was above all a man of praise. He led, a God, he led a life of God-directed praise. And that changed the atmosphere and impacted the lives around him. And so when our lives are centered around heartfelt praise, 
prayer and worship of God, God's response is always working in us and through us. And so here's our first reflection question. Oops. Countdown time, okay. Is praise and worship an integral part of our, your life or just a matter of routine? Well, and what is the difference? And for the kids, why is worshipping and praising God so important for us? Second, the power of God-centered perspective, seeing with the eyes of faith. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that when Goliath came out to challenge the army of Israel to, to fight, to a fight, Saul and his men were dismayed. In fact, uh, chapter 17 verse 24 says that whenever the Israelites saw him, Goliath, they all fled from him in great fear. They could not even bear looking at him, much less take up arms to challenge him. Goliath literally defeated Israel's army without lifting a finger. Israel was defeated even before any physical blow was struck. But David saw differently. In verse 26, David says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Later, David told King Saul, your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he defied the armies of the living God. In other words, for David, 
Goliath was as good as dead because he had dared come against God. Where others saw a fearsome giant, David saw a defeated enemy. Goliath was a dead man walking in David's eyes because he could see the situation for what it really was. David could perceive what God was about to do for his He was perceptive to how God can work. Saul and his men only saw and perceived the surface-level reality. Their perception was grounded in their own limitations and what they could or could not do against the enemy. David, on the other hand, saw things differently because he was seeing the situation from God's perspective. David's power of perception, seeing and understanding a situation, was based on what can do, not what humans can or cannot do. In the Exodus account, Moses sends 12 spies into the land of Canaan to scout out the land and investigate the tribes who lived there. Of course, this was hundreds of years before David. Sure enough, they didn't find just one giant like Goliath. They found tribes of powerful men and giants, tribes of them, fearsome, fearsome warriors who could do them real damage. The perception of most of the spies was this. In comparison to them, we are like grasshoppers as nothing before these giants, these fearsome warriors. But two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, saw things differently. They said in Numbers chapter, um, uh, Numbers chapter 14, verse 9, do not be afraid of these people, the people of the land, because we will devour them. The original Hebrew word was because they will be as bread for us. The others saw giants and fearsome warriors. Joshua and Caleb basically said that Israel can have them for breakfast, figuratively speaking. Something along the lines of the um, Chinese, uh, what the Cantonese expression, sub sub sir, yeah. Easy peasy, no, no problem. They can take them on. And the reason for the confidence of these two men of faith is this. Their protection, that means these tribes of fearsome warriors, their giants, Joshua and Caleb could literally see their protection is gone, stripped away, they are disarmed. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Joshua and Caleb perceived God's hand moving in their midst, and because of that, they could see that the tribes of fearsome warriors and giants had no protection. They had zero chance of standing up to Israel's army if only God's people had faith in God. In the same way, when David saw Goliath, he saw that this man had zero chance of standing up against God. Seeing with God-centered perspective is also prophetic in that you see beyond the present reality to God's vision for the future. In Ezekiel chapter 37, God 
brought the prophet Ezekiel to see a valley of dry bones. And God challenged the prophet to see beyond the reality of the present time and to speak the word of God's future into the present, that God will grant life and breath again to the dry bones. What do you see today in your life circumstances? What do you see in your family life? What do you see in Malaysia's future? Do you see insurmountable obstacles and fearsome giants in your life? Do you see a valley of dry bones in the future of the country? If God's people only see giants and not deliverance, if we only see dead bones without God's vision for life, then we will turn back on God's future for us and for the nation. But if we allow God to dominate our perspectives on life, then crippling fear, easy complacency, listless unbelief will start to recede to the margins. Fear, failures, setbacks will always be there. But they will start to be dominated by faith as we centre back on God. When we bring a God-dominated perspective to the battles we face in lives, in our lives, then giants start to be cut down to size. Problems start to be overcome by God-sized answers. Fears start to be dominated by hope. Like David, Joshua and Caleb before us, we can start to see what God can do, not what we, or what we can or cannot do. And so for our second reflection question, what do we see in our lives today? In what ways might God want us to see things differently? And for the kids, why is it important to see things from God's point of view?
Third, the power of God-given God prevailing victory. God's sovereign will prevails over all things. In other words, God wins in the end. God's, um, David's life of God-directed praise filled him with a sense of God's greatness and awesome power. This, in turn, gave David the right perspective of how to deal with this Goliath. This was not a fearsome giant. This was a condemned, defeated enemy. David knew the outcome the moment he heard the giant's defiance against God. Nonetheless, David needed to face and fight this giant. At times, God's deliverance comes without the people needing to do anything, but God often works through men and women of faith. Here it is clear that David had the conviction that God had prepared him for this moment to face the enemy. David had years of preparation as a shepherd. This, is, this was God's training ground for David. And David had experienced God's deliverance and strength in helping him fight against wild beasts that attacked the sheep when he was a shepherd. This is what he told uh, Saul, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine, of this Philistine. So unlike some of the uh, children's Bibles who show that uh, David was such a small little lad or small boy fighting a big giant, at this point when David went to face the Goliath, he was probably uh, um, quite a robust teenager, maybe mid teens to late teens. Um, Saul is too experienced a soldier to try to fit him in into armour that he, you know, a small boy couldn't walk. So he, he was a robust lad, but obviously um, with very youthful features, basically. That's why he was mocked by Goliath. But essentially, David went out to face Goliath with a shepherd's weapons, not with sophisticated armour or, or with um, you know, a sword or anything. With the shepherds, he, he fought the way God had prepared him. He didn't conform to the expectations of others whether he could fight or the way he ought to fight. David's preparation, how God prepared him, fitted in with the victory God had provisioned for him. But above all, David was God, because David was God-centered, he recognized that it was God who was going to fight through him. This was going to be God's victory according to God's ways. In verse 45, chapter 17, David tells Goliath, you come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. In this fight, Weapons of armies and strength of men will prove less than useless. As David declares, 
all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. It is God who prevails in the fight against the enemy. Israel's victory that day was not just a military one, it was a testimony of God's redemptive work in the life of Israel. As David says, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Now, we cannot claim that the battle is the Lord's when it's actually our own selfish conflicts and struggles against one another out of pride, greed, or envy. We, not, we cannot claim that God is on our side automatically. Rather, it is for us to ensure that we are on God's side, that we are living in obedience to His calling for us. So God's work of deliverance in our lives is not to further our own ambitions or to justify our self-centered agendas. God's deliverance is to show a watching world that there is a God who powerfully saves those who put their faith and trust in Him. It is to show that there is a God in you who overcomes the world. Our primary weapons today are spiritual in nature. Jesus commands us to love our enemies and to bless those who curse us. Christians are called to spiritually disarm their enemies by God's redemptive love and forgiveness in Christ, which is the heart of the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 4, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. The battle waged by God's people today is spiritual because we are contending for the souls of people with eternal consequences, as Pastor Shen preached during Holy Week. We can only win if we fight spiritually according to God, according to how God has prepared us to fight using the spiritual weapons He has equipped us with. We are called to be spiritual giant killers by bringing down strongholds of unbelief and unforgiveness, of human pride, spiritual bondage and blindness to bring down these strongholds with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are engaged in the spiritual battle of standing firm against the works of the devil that kill and destroy life. We stand in the gap of intercession with songs of deliverance everywhere we see works of sin, sickness and death. There is a fight today over the hearts and minds of people. There are extreme views and cultural lifestyles that go against what God desires for us. There is a spiritual battle over the minds of the watching world, whether God is relevant to lives of people trapped in cycles of sin, violence, sickness and despair. 
Are we engaged in this spiritual battle? Or are we busy pursuing our own ambitions in life? Now, we might think that spiritual weapons have very little impact on our down-to-earth fears and struggles. But this is because we often forget how the power of the gospel transformed and changed people's lives when Jesus first announced it and when the early church preached it. It literally turned the world upside down. The power of the gospel. The victory of Christ at the cross and the resurrection of Christ are still the most potent weapons for the Christian against every attack of Satan. I remember one uh, American, Iranian American pastor uh, was sharing how in the wake of the uh, 9-11 terrorist attack on America, he was, he was wanting to go out to churches to preach a mes- message of forgiveness and reconciliation, a message of loving your enemies and blessing those who curse you. And he was sharing that a lot of American pastors told him, don't bring that message. The people cannot take it because they were on the path of vengeance. And pastors told him, don't bring this message of forgiveness. Do not preach to love our enemies. Because the furor of the American uh, church and the public at that time was so great uh, in response to the terrorist attack. But when we forsake the message of the gospel, we disarm ourselves. We have just left the most powerful spiritual weapons that the Lord has given us and we refuse to preach and live this message. We disarm ourselves spiritually against the power of darkness. The hope hope that we have in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, the faith that God works in our lives for our ultimate good is the slingshot that will bring down the giants we face in life. We take whatever wise and right and practical steps to do well in our jobs, in our vocation, to manage our finances responsibly, take care of our health, including medical care, to look after our families, but have God at the centre of what we do and how we live. There may be times of crisis and more uncertainty ahead. Uh, Most economists and analysts have have already noticed that the food prices have shot off the roof and famine might, might be coming for different parts of the world. But we will not respond with fear and desperation, neither will we sink into listless resignation or hopeless anxiety. God is going to raise many of you to be men and women of faith who will raise up the faith of others around you on the day of battle. Many of you who will set a high bar for sacrificial love and invest in the work of the kingdom in a time of trouble. 
many of us will be called to demonstrate the power of a God-centered life in the hour of struggle so that the watching world will know that there's an all-powerful God living in us, working through us to impact the lives around us. Some of us here are already facing the battles that threaten to overwhelm us. But take heart. It is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. And our third reflection question is this, and we'll end with a prayer after this. What is the one key battle in your life right now? Would you trust and obey God in all that God is about to do for you? And for the kids, would you bring to God now one area of your life that troubles you or makes you afraid? want to um, just say a prayer for us and I invite the worship team to um, minister to us after that in time of worship. And also, um, when Pastor Shen gives the benediction, you know, it's, it's, it's routine, right? Every week we hear the, the worship, we hear the benediction and, you know, what's for lunch, right? But, but, but today, receive the word of benediction like you really believe it. I just want to invite you to, to bring that uh, battle or struggle before the Lord and whatever that we are wrestling with, the impossible um, giants, the situations that have no human answers, the, the grief, the sadness, the fears that uh, sometimes just 
cripples us and clouds our thoughts and how we feel. But there is a God, an all-powerful God, living in you, working in you, working through you. And if you are listening in online or here today and you have not really surrendered your life to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is the day of salvation. This is the day of your deliverance. And others of you here have, have uh, struggles that we, we, we need God-sized answers and God-given deliverance. And we want to bring that before the Lord right now. Father, for those of us in prayer, we have not known you as Lord and Saviour. We have never surrendered our life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that your Spirit will cause the saving faith, the convicting faith, to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not given your life to the Lord, I invite you to call upon the name of the Lord. There's nothing that needs to hold you back. There's no sin, there's no shame, there's no guilt that the Lord cannot forgive and take away. And right now, if you are that person, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner, lost without hope, without a future. But because of you, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust you as my Lord and Saviour. Father, we want to pray for those who have given their lives to the Lord and we pray that from this day they will know salvation deliverance from the Lord. We commit one another before you, gracious God, because we are wrestling with fears and uncertainties. We are wrestling with things in life that grant us fear. We don't know how to move. We don't know what to do. But today, right now, our eyes are upon you. You are a God who responds to the cries of your people. And so, with our eyes on you, Father, would you do your work of deliverance, your work of salvation, your work of healing, your work of reconciliation, that you might bring transformation in our lives, in our work life, in the life of our marriages, in the life of our families, in the life of this nation, in the life of all nations. Help us not to be afraid, not to look 
to the future with fear and desperation, but help us overcome our fears because of the power and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cling on to the Lord because we know that He holds our future and the battle belongs to the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church,